0: On this episode of Forge and Anvil, we will discuss the 2024 election and whether or not we have any hope of winning the White House. We'll spend some time focusing on one of the key swing states, Arizona, as well as evaluate the potential three-way slugfest that will be the 2024 Arizona Senate race. Finally, we'll ask the question many great minds have been debating, which is, should conservative voters leave their blue states and move to red and purple states? All of this and more... Welcome to Forge and Anvil. My name is Connor. I am host of this podcast. I am joined tonight by uh, two first-time guests. The first one is State Representative Austin Smith. So Austin, say hello. Tell the audience who you are and what you do.
1: Thanks, Connor. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Will, for doing as well. Good to see you, Gavin. My name is Austin Smith. I'm a State Representative here in Arizona. I'm also the Enterprise Director at Turning Point Action, the 501c4 sister organization, Turning Point USA. Um, I oversee our national field program across the country and our you know, target states like Nevada, Arizona. We're based here in Arizona, uh, Wisconsin, Iowa, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Um, uh, you know, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. Those are the three states to taking back the White House. You know, potentially taking back the United States Senate. Um, line in the sand right now. I feel like 2024. Those three states. And, you know, the map only is going to go a certain way. You know, regarding like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Florida. We have to win Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. If we don't win all three of those states. Um, you know, we're not going to get back to the White House for a very long time. And that's truly unfortunate, but that's the reality that we're living in. So I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more today and what conservatives, America First people um, are doing to take back the White House and play a little bit of offense here. So happy to be here.
0: Well, welcome in. We'll definitely unpack a lot of what you said there, because that's definitely what I want us to focus in on tonight. And we're also joined by first time guest Gavin Wax. So, Gavin, same thing. Introduce yourself. Well, it's
2: great to be here, uh, including with my good friend uh, Austin Smith, who I know from the YRs. Uh, I run the New York Young Republican Club. We're the oldest and largest uh, young Republican club in the country, uh, You know, fighting in the belly of the beast that is New York City. Uh, my day job, I'm the executive director of the National Constitutional Law Union, representing a lot of Americans whose constitutional rights have been violated. Think of it as like a conservative alternative uh, to the ACLU. Uh, I have a book coming out uh, with my co-author, Troy Olson, hopefully by the end of this year, entitled The Emerging Populist Majority, building off books from the past that you may have heard of, uh, including the, uh, the Emerging Democrat Majority, which has been proven, obviously, uh, not to be a factually uh, accurate book, and then the previous book, uh, The Emerging Republican Majority from the 1960s, talking about the Nixon landslide and all the rest. So uh, in addition to that, I do a lot of uh, online writing, whether it's for Daily Call or Town Hall Newsmax etc and I'm really looking forward to the discussion guys
0: awesome well welcome in and as you can see Michael is on vacation so I asked Will from Renaissance of Men to help me co-host he's going to be actually watching the chat on Rumble so if any of you are uh, on Rumble feel free to send in questions just general comments and we will uh, read some of those on air and of course we'll do the same for YouTube but uh, Will please introduce yourself for those who are not yet
3: familiar yeah thanks for having me Connor it's good to be with you Austin and Gavin I'm the host of the Renaissance of Men. of Podcast uh, documenting the forty-year redemption of masculinity that's going on all around us, and uh, promoting that uh, along with uh, along with men's mentorship and and uh, and, a, and a men's group. And so uh, I'm very excited to be talking with you guys because I think the things that I study and the things that I'm interested in feed very much into what you guys are working towards for 2024. Just a, a rediscovery of masculine values that needs to happen within America and the West.
0: Awesome. Well, glad to have you back, Will. We'll go ahead and dive into our first story. Um, but uh, before we do that, if you have not already followed us on Twitter, feel free to do so at Forge and A. This is from the Post Millennial. Trump beats Biden in general election and dominates GOP primary. Tops DeSantis by forty points, Harvard Harris Poll. Still, so, if it'll load for me here, former president Donald Trump is beating President Joe Biden in a new national election poll and is dominating the Republican Party primary with a 40 point lead over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. According to new Harvard Harris poll, Trump is the clear favorite of the GOP nomination, leading with 52 percent over DeSantis's 12 percent. In addition, Trump has a 42 point lead over third place candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. The national poll was conducted with 2,068 registered voters, and results were weighted by political party affiliation, region, and other demographics. In a matchup for the presidency, Trump polls ahead and wins a hypothetical horse race against Biden by five points and leads against Vice President Kamala Harris by nine in another potential matchup. Voters who are polled for the general election were asked if the 2024 election for president were held today and it was between donald trump the republican and joe biden the democrat who would you vote for the same question was asked for harris in place of biden although there is support for both trump and biden in a head-to-head matchup for the presidency two-thirds of voters do not wish to see biden run while less than six in ten say the same for trump 57% of those polled also said they would consider an independent, moderate candidate, and 70% say they want another choice. Aside from the presidential race and GOP primary, the economy and recent Supreme Court cases were also highlighted in the poll. A majority of voters believe that Trump and Republicans in Congress understand the economy better than Biden. Independents split 60% to Trump and 40% to Biden on the subject of the economy. The majority of voters also thought that Trump had better economic policies than Biden does now. As far as Supreme Court cases, a majority of voters think that some of the recent major cases decided by the Supreme Court ended with a correct winning ruling. 56% of voters in the poll agreed that abortion laws should be left to the states instead of being a constitutional right, and 60% agreed that people who design websites do not have to design a site for a gay wedding if that's against their religious belief. The case overruling affirmative action was also supported by over two-thirds of those polled. Other topics such as student loans January 6th and the war in Ukraine were also covered. So we'll go ahead and leave that there. There's obviously a lot in this article to unpack a lot of things that are uh, interesting points that the poll covers here. Personally, I don't care much for polls, mostly because we've seen a lot of historical uh, inaccuracies with polling. Um, I will say that the midterm election for 2022, the polling seemed to be a little bit more accurate. Uh, what that means, though, is kind of up to your interpretation, given uh, I think most people don't trust pollsters these days. That's pretty evident. Um, but uh, either way, there's still a lot of great conversational uh, topics that uh, we can use for this uh, this article here. Um, one of the interesting things that I saw was, of course, the fact that uh, Trump has already stated to be able to beat Biden in the general, which is something that so many people keep saying is impossible. So um, obviously, we're having a primary going on right now. I have been pretty agnostic on the primary. If uh, you've been following me for much, I comment here and there, but I have not necessarily uh, been a a full-throated endorser of any one candidate um, because ultimately I think the mechanics is going to be the number one thing that we need to focus on right now. Uh, It is clear that there is a machine built to oppose uh, any Republican candidate, and that's a lot of what we're going to focus on tonight. Um, But first, I'll turn it over to you, Austin, to get your initial reaction to this uh, post-millennial article and the poll.
1: So it's really interesting. I don't know if you saw it or not, but a few weeks ago there was a poll that was also done in Florida that had Trump up 50 points over DeSantis with young Republican voters. And so millennials, Gen Z, you know, we, they overtook the boomers in this last election cycle. And you'll see a lot from you know the TikTok Gen Z influencers and even some of the crazy purple haired people on Twitter that you know, Gen Z is going to crush the GOP. It was like, well, actually, the GOP is making really good inroads with younger voters and specifically people like Donald Trump, who has more of a heartbeat and a pulse on the conservative movement and pop culture than any other president in our lifetime. Um, He's a funny guy. So it's not it's I'm not surprised at all that he's actually, you know, performing better than Biden in these polls, way outpacing DeSantis, who, you know, I, I got to interact with him last uh, election cycle when Turning Point Action did some tours with him and stuff. But he's not you know, he's not that glue of a candidate that everybody knows about Donald Trump. And so um, I'm not too surprised with those type of polls there. Now, however, you know, we're talking about the mechanics of things, um, the states like Arizona, where we're going to need I know, you know, Arizona is interesting because we've got. As many or more independent voters, you know, whether they're right-leaning or left-leaning, then we do have Republicans. And a lot of those people are just dissatisfied with the party. So our job, you know, as conservative activists, whether Trump's the nominee or DeSantis is the nominee, if the mechanics aren't in place, which we'll talk about a little bit later, you know, winning states like Arizona and Georgia, um, it's going to still be tough because the left has a, you know, a massive machine when it comes to ballot harvesting, ballot chasing. Um, We experienced it really in 2018 when Arizona switched over to like the vote center model rather than the precinct model, you know, during COVID, the mass milling of ballots. And so we've seen polls like this before. So take it really with a grain of salt because um, the left has, you know, ungodly amounts of money to swing elections. And that's definitely going to impact like, you know, the Senate race here in Arizona with, you know, Cinema running, Gallego running and the only Republican who's announced so far is Sheriff Mark Lamb in Pinal County, um, Carrie Lake, you know, has flirted with the idea of announcing. And so it's really just, a three-way race right now between Mark mm-hmm. Lamb, Cinema, and uh, Ruben Gallego, with Trump on the ticket. Voter rep- Republican turnout is going to go up, and I think that's what killed us also in 2022. Is that you know we didn't perform in places that we should have. Oh, I give a perfect example: Mojave County in Arizona in 2020 dominated for Donald Trump. It's the most Republican county in the state of Arizona. I went to their Mojave County GOP meeting a couple weeks ago, and I spoke to their chairwoman, and I asked her how many Republican votes were left on the table. In Mojave County in 2022, and she said 8,000. Well, 8,000—that's 8, the whole Attorney General's race in Arizona by just under 200 votes. So um, these polls are good, but the mechanics part of it—we still have a lot of work to do between you know 501C4s, PACs, young Republicans in the state, the RNC apparatus, the GOP apparatus as a whole. So it's good numbers, but we still have a long way to go.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we're definitely going to talk through. Um, that uh, senate race in more detail and uh, i've I made a couple mental notes of some of the things that you said here um i did want to go ahead and say hello to shara joel in the chat she said i don't listen to polls you can't get an accurate measure for the country by asking less than 300 assuming they were all telling the truth that one was uh 2068 i think it said but still i totally understand what you're saying um you also might have meant to say 3000 there, Shara. I'm not sure on that. And then uh, Nika3 said, good afternoon. I follow Gavin on Twitter. I plan to vote. Trump is part of the problem poor funding by the GOP for certain candidates. We'll definitely get into the funding as well. But uh, oh, hi, Suzy Keel, Welcome in the chat. Um, but Gavin, we'll go ahead and turn it over to you for your initial reaction to the article before we go on to some of those questions
2: yeah listen i agree with uh, pretty much everything that uh, austin just said i'll touch on a few other points i mean first with this specific poll it's not an outlier i mean trump has um you know been neck and neck in the rcp average there have been series of polls that have shown him up by three four five six i mean these are very substantial uh margins especially when you factor in that these are you know national popular Uh, you know, vote polls, which he doesn't necessarily have to win. He could theoretically be in a D plus two, D plus three environment and still win based on the electoral college and where those votes are uh, spread out. Uh, And I would also make a, a historical point here that Trump Uh, never polled this well, either in 16 or 20. I mean, this is looking to be, you know, his most robust coalition, his strongest coalition going into election uh, to date. And a lot of the circumstances in 2020, obviously, are not going to be at play, or at least we hope. But I think it's safe to say they won't be at play uh, this time around. We won't have a summer of love, quote unquote. We won't have, you know, basically a color revolution. We won't have, uh, you know, all plandemic pandemic nonsense. So uh, the the lay of the land is going to be certainly different. So I'll put that out there. And then onto the general talk about polls yes, polls are flawed. Uh, it's really the only quantitative data we have to do some sort of election analysis at this as this stage uh, so it's not perfect but it's what we have we can look at historical analysis we could look at other you know measures you know people don't like to talk about crowd size or whatever or fundraising numbers but really every everything we have available to us all have their their flaws but this is the best we have. I will make the argument that most of these polls are inherently biased. Uh, towards Republicans, particularly towards someone like Trump. Uh, they are either you know intentionally biased because they're pushing an agenda or their methodology simply hasn't caught up uh, with the times. I think the Trump movement, the populist movement, uh, that sort of energy, a lot of these first-time voters, uh, these nonpartisan voters uh, that really that Trump was able to bring out to the fold, it's very hard to pull them. It's very hard to measure them because they're not your traditional voters. So All of those biases still exist in most of these polls. And the fact that Trump is overcoming those biases is actually something that I think is the biggest takeaway because there's a built in margin against him and most Republicans in general. When you're overcoming that, I think it does show a serious groundswell of support for that candidate, in this case, Donald J. Trump. So the polling for me has been a point of, you know, optimism uh, for his candidacy in the general election. And I think it runs contrary to what you alluded to earlier, being this sort of, you know, this notion that he's unelectable, that's being pushed by both the establishment and the left. When in reality, I mean, if if we go by the only quantitative data we have, he is the most electable candidate going into 2024, and he's far more electable than he was in 16 or 20. So that's just that poll. That's just the polling. I'm confident going forward. But yes, as Austin said, there's a lot of logistical matters, mechanical matters, structural matters that we, we can't rest on our laurels on. And, uh, you know, obviously having a bigger margin helps you know, alleviate those concerns, but I do think this is still going to come down to the wire. I do think this is going to be a very close election. When you have these close elections, when you're talking about a few points on the margin, you're talking about an attorney general race in Arizona with, well, with two hundred votes. I mean, everything counts. All the auxiliary organizations uh, and infrastructure that Austin mentioned, all of the 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 the, the legal, uh, the the legislative, you know, uh, matters as they relate to how these elections are conducted. That's how they matter. You know, what are we doing to take advantage of you know certain laws whether we like them or not where they exist whether it is you know ballot harvesting whether it is Early voting or mail-in voting. Uh, It's something that we need to actively discuss. And we've seen a precedent in the past where certain Republican parties in certain states and in certain localities, they have taken advantage of some of these these electoral methods, whether it is early voting or or, or mail-in voting or proxy voting, and they've seen some success with it. I'm not going to say that it's going to necessarily always work in our favor, but if given the tool, if it's legally allowed, Uh, and it's a viable electoral strategy, we should certainly use it. And once we're in power, then we could talk about reform. But, you know, this is all very multifaceted. I think this is going to be a very unique election. We have two incumbents running against each other. We haven't Mm. seen this since Grover Cleveland in the 1800s. So it's really going to be record versus record. You're not going to have necessarily the incumbency advantage that you've seen in past elections. Uh, And I think it's really going to be one for the books. And uh, it's going to be very hard to be super predictive about this because it's so novel Uh, In its very nature. But I'm sure we'll delve into those details as the show goes on.
0: Yes, we definitely will. And you bring up a lot of great points. And again, I've taken some notes and we'll break down some of what you've already laid out for us. Um, Will, I want to give you a a hard task, though. Um, First Mm. of all, I want to get your initial reaction. But then beyond that, I'm going to give you a hard task by asking you to, because this could be a whole podcast on itself. So I'm going to ask you to give a super quick. breakdown of why we should even care about this election from a Christian standpoint, because our podcast kind of operates in a funny uh, area on the Internet where we have a lot of churchgoers, deacons, pastors that listen into our podcast. And um, to some degree, we're some of these people's only source of news because a lot of people are much more focused on their theology and Um, Their walk with uh, with Christ, which obviously is incredibly important. And uh, you should probably know that if you watch the show um, frequently. Um, But uh, we're getting a lot more mechanical with this uh, with this episode. And I think it's important for those that exact group of people that I described a moment ago. Um, But first and foremost, I'm going to turn it over to you to kind of quickly maybe sit those people down and tell them why this is an important podcast to listen to, even if it might be out of the ordinary for maybe some of the uh, uh, the regular content that they listen to.
3: Sure. So um, I think the first thing to point out is that for me, my hope is not in politics. And I think that there are a lot of people listening that would agree. And I'm glad to see you nodding as well, because my hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in politics. But that doesn't mean we throw politics out. And one of the things that I heard you guys say with the, and it's hiding, not intentionally necessarily behind the phrase mechanical is that there's a groundswell of support, and I think we saw this in 2016, and we saw it in 2020 for a Republican candidate. And it's not necessarily clear whether all the voters in the country voting for voting for Donald Trump will result in a Donald Trump election. That there are significant strategic legal uh, shenanigans—maybe <laughs> you wouldn't use those words—but you know impediments to a vote equaling a vote. And I think that that's a really profound moral problem. And, um, and that should be of concern to many people. That alone means that this election is important because the only hope of addressing the systemic moral problem from a position of like my vote as a man equals my vote as a man is to bring in someone who actually w- isn't necessarily taking advantage of those shenanigans. And so I think I could make the case that even setting aside things like Supreme Court cases, Uh, you know, even setting aside, you know, woke insanity, um, even setting aside anything like that to say, if we want to live in a world where your yes means yes and your no means no, we have to bring in candidates that are committed to that perspective. And I don't see a commitment to yes means yes and no means no coming from the left at all. That's not not what they do. Um, But a belief in truth and the belief in individuals speaking up and their voice, having an actual value uh, is, is the real reason, I think, why many Christians should care to begin living in a country where that expression of our individual will is, is honored instead of discarded in favor of a status agenda. And so um, so, again, the hope for salvation isn't in politics, but if we want to live in a nation that actually aligns with our Christian faith and values, the only hope for that is, is on the right. And that's, that's, that's what I would say there.
0: Yeah. Well said. Well said. I gave you a hard task. and I think you did a good job. So yeah, well, let's talk okay, about, coach. Oh, go ahead.
3: Sorry. In, guys. Go ahead. Sorry. Put okay. me in coach.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pull up uh, 270 to win because this is a great uh, sort of introduction. Uh, Austin, you already brought up some of the key states, that uh, right now we need to really be focused in on um, for the 2024 election i'd like to obviously get into future elections as well because we do have to look past 2024 that is a big problem with our movement is we often look just to the very next election um that's a big weakness but um, regardless there is an upcoming election and we need to talk about that so you guys let me know um austin gavin will if i have any of this off here but 270 to win this is so far the 2024 consensus so i would say if i add a a a tilt you could probably say that right now nevada tilts blue correct and pennsylvania probably tilts blue would that be fair yeah yeah and without doing
2: any toss-ups right just this we're trying to fill the map out
0: right so right now filling the map out that's what we're looking at here um and I would say I would say that these two are in a separate category from what I would consider to be a real 50-50 could go anyway toss-up of Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia. Would that be fair?
2: Yeah, I mean, looking at this map, I mean I mean, I would honestly put Michigan as tilt if we're gonna get rid of all the toss-ups, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think there have been some polls in Michigan that have been solid. Um, and I guess, you know, some of the polling, you know, you could put these categories in tilt, but you know, it's really going to be subjective at the end of the day. And we're going to pick certain polls we want. I mean, I think Ohio's safe red. I think Iowa is safe red. I think they fully realigned. Um, you know, I agree with North, I agree with North Carolina. You know, I think there's an argument to be made that Florida is going to be safe red too, but you know, mm. we'll have to see. but this is really, this is on the margins. This is picking on the margins.
0: Right. Right. And so if we were to fill in, these toss-ups that we have listed here. So first and foremost, if we were to fill them in as tilt Republican, you can see here, we've got 272. It takes 270 electoral votes to win the White House. So we quite literally need every single one of those states because if just one of those was to go blue, we have Joe Biden for another four years or Kamala Harris or whoever the nominee ends up being on the Democratic ticket. So that being said, um, there's a lot of things that we could talk about with each of these states, but we do have Austin here. So I want to focus a lot on Arizona and what can be done in Arizona to make sure that we have an effective turnout in 2024. And Austin, if you can maybe just speak to, um, you know, kind of what the the on the ground looks like for Arizona and, and, and where we currently sit.
1: Right. So let's go back to let's go back and break this down to like 2016. Trump's running there. Um, obviously, the Republican nominee. Hillary Clinton is the Democrat nominee. John McCain is running for his last term there. Um, you know, Arizona is still a Republican state. John, Jeff Flake was in the Senate at the time. Doug Ducey was still in his first term as governor. Republicans had about a 33 or 34, 35 seat majority in the House, 17 out of 30 in the state Senate. Um Adrián Fontez runs for county recorder for Maricopa County. If you're unfamiliar with Maricopa County, it's the fourth largest county in the country. I believe it still is the largest Republican county, rep- voting county in the country. One of the most important battleground state or counties, as Maricopa goes, Arizona goes. The way Arizona goes, the country will go. Um, really, because we've had an influx of millions of people moving to Arizona over the last, you know, several years. Um, so, Adrián Fontes, who now is the Secretary of State, he then had run for county recorder. We really were focused on a precinct voting model where you vote in your precinct on election day um and that's how it always was in arizona he beats helen purcell who'd been the recorder for maricopa county i believe since the 1980s very long time um you know went way past her time that she needed to be there for the county recorder's office gave too much ground to the left to the, the mark Eliases of the world you know the, the democrats that came here to arizona just population change that happened in the state so Adrian Fontes becomes the county recorder in 2016. Um, he runs his first election for Maricopa County in 2018. Um, Martha McSally was running for the United States Senate at the time um, against Kirsten Cinema, who had been a state legislator in Arizona in a swing area of the state of Maricopa County. Then became a congresswoman who really did have somewhat of a you know moderate tone, somewhat of a moderate record, but not on the you know key Democrat platform issues: abortion, the Second Amendment, health care taxes, you know, working rights, so on and so forth. Um, She runs for the United States Senate, gets the Democrat nominee. Doug Ducey wins, you know, hand over foot for his reelection. because He had a lot of name ID plus a record that he was running on. Um, Cinema had a lead, you know, going in through Election Day. They had a lot of mail-in ballots already out. Um, We had the vote center model where polling locations did go down, but it wasn't that big of an issue like it was in uh, 2020, 2022. 2020 rolls around. Um, Adrian Fontes is still the secretary of state. And, you know, Arizona wasn't the only state where the secretaries of state went around their state legislatures and had a mass mail-in ballot system where that wasn't the law, where that just happened. Um, so Maricopa County, obviously being the battleground that it is, 2022 rolls around. Actually, I should say it took almost 30 days for them to call the election in Arizona because of the mail-in ballots, because of <laughs> You know, people dropping them off on Election Day in Maricopa County. That was the the debacle. That was 2020. Um, We still had the state legislature at the time after 2020 and the governor's office. We had obviously all of you know, you know, Arizona was at the forefront of the election integrity fight in 2020 um, or after 2020. Excuse me. And Doug Ducey was the governor. Rusty Bowers, who some of you may know, was the speaker of the House. And Karen Fan was the president of the Senate. Um, give her when credit's due. Karen Fan was more of a establishment moderate legislator and when she was Senate president. Um, but she helped initiate the Maricopa County audit and brought a lot of the election integrity bills forward. Um, Rusty Bowers either blocked or really killed and some other establishment Republican legislators in Arizona for the uh, election integrity fixes when Doug Ducey was governor. Back to square one in 2022. Um, obviously, everybody was nervous about the mail-in ballot system. There was no way to legally get around it. The right doesn't have a Mark Elias of the world for here in Arizona. Arizona is drastically underfunded. You know, Blake Masters was left to fend for himself. Essentially, the, Mitch McConnell's of the uh, didn't help. You know, the RGA was nowhere to be found for Carrie Lake. They didn't spend as much money as they needed to. Um, M- Mark Fincham, who's running for secretary of state, obviously didn't get enough. And so they're all the Democrat nominees that we have run against here in Arizona are not that popular in a state that structurally is conservative. But when you have you know, moderate Republicans or uh, election laws in place where the left has been able to manipulate our elections. Perfect example, Maricopa County, it's not Stephen Richer, who's our county recorder now, who beat Fontes in 2020 um, that actually runs our elections. He facilitates them as and counts the votes when they bring to the recorder's office, the Board of Supervisors that oversee our elections. And so in 2022, a lot of Republicans were excited to vote on Election Day because of the sour taste that was left in their mouth in 2020 You know, of how well the left can manipulate or I should say prostitute the mail-in ballot system. And so that wasn't changed here in Arizona. And so what happens is, is that, you know, 60 percent of the voting locations went down on Election Day. And why is that a problem? Well, when you have voting locations, you have hundreds, if not thousands of people going to one central area to get an on-demand printing ballot. That there's issues. They printed, they have the wrong size paper to print ballots on election day. So people who have to work a nine to five job or eight to four, or eight to six can't stand in line all day. And the response from the county recorder's office and the board of Supervisors was, well, those people had other places to vote. You know, that's you know pretty much unacceptable. And so a lot of people, we don't actually have a sufficient number of people who were actually disenfranchised on election day in Maricopa County. And so you know, regardless of what, you know, like Kerry's lawsuit, Abe's lawsuit, the fact of the matter is, is that people were disenfranchised on election day in 2022 in Maricopa County? I'm in the legislature now. We have 31 Republicans in the House. We have 16 Republicans in the Senate. That's a raise. That's a one-seat majority. We have a Democrat governor, a Democrat Attorney General, and a Democrat Secretary of State. I'm on the Elections Committee in the House. We have passed out all good election bills that should have, that, that shore up elections that you know that are strengthened our um, voter ID laws that strengthen signature verification that strengths your poll observing, that strengths your tabulation, so on and so forth. We had an omnibus of election bills this year. Hobbs didn't sign one of them. Some of them we didn't even get up on the board. And so election integrity is defense. We haven't played offense in the last three election cycles in Arizona. We just haven't. Mm -hmm. We've had conservatives in really good spots. You know, hat tip to to my boss and our Arizona National Committee, man Tyler Boyer really rings the alarm bell against, you know, what elections, what's happening, how they're manipulating it in those states. You know, give them credit credit is due whether you liked her or not, Kelly Ward was an effective chairwoman because we were still able to win races in places that we need to. We don't have the entire machinery here in Arizona and Maricopa County. That's why it's so important to win Arizona because the RNC has neglected Arizona in the past. The RGA really doesn't because they don't have an election here. The NRSC with the Mitch McConnells don't do it. The NRCC really hasn't done it. If you look, uh, David Schweikert, who represents – you know, the most swing area um, in Maricopa County for Congress. He raised just under or a little bit over um, half a million dollars this year. He left. If you don't know this. He left the Freedom Caucus. He bashed the, the Freedom Caucus, whether because he said that was a, uh, he didn't want to be associated with populism. And really, his district is swing and he can't be associated with that. And so he kind of threw conservatives under the mat there as a reason why he's getting out. And he didn't even raise enough money. So we're not in a good spot in Arizona right now. Because we don't have the the financial infrastructure coming into place, we're really trying to build it here at Turning Point Action with our with our um, still vote on election day, you know, mail-in ballot, early vote thing. We have to do all of them because none of the election changes were made between 2018 and 2022 that were significant for Arizona, plus the financial infrastructure. So that's why Arizona is so important. Because if we don't have the because we don't have um, you know a Mark Elias that lives here in Arizona, we don't have three or four of them. Here in arizona ready to sue the crap out of the board of supervisors or the democrat party we just don't have that here and so the left has poured in millions of dollars through c4s through PACs, through 501c3s that that offset their voter registration they don't rely on the parties anymore and this is what this is what the democrats have figured out in arizona because they mimicked it from california or excuse me colorado to arizona and so we're fighting it tooth and nail in arizona because we're just on the margins here And gavin brought it up these elections will be won on the margins and so that's why arizona is so important Carrie Lake, I think it was like 14,000 votes between here, her and Hobbs, 200 votes for Abe Hominay and Chris Mays. That's how thin these margins are going to be. And that's going to continue to be in that place until we um, can take Arizona back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In the chat, uh, Shara said, establishment Republicans are just as bad in my opinion. And NICA3 said, yes, Shara, lots of unit party members in both sides of the aisle. Carmen says, I live in Maricopa County, moved here in 1980. I am voting for DeSantis, which that's fair right now. We're mostly just focusing on the general. We can talk through the primary a little bit at some point. I'm sure we're all itching to talk more on that as well, since it is the topic of the day, but I wanted to, um, talk through there, Austin, you brought up Carrie Lake and you brought up, uh, the attorney's general race. So, um, with Abe Hamaday only losing by, I think it was like, what, 208? It was it was right around 200 votes. So um, I know there's been a lot of litigation on that front. Um, can you give us like a super quick update on where that stands?
1: Yeah, so um, really grateful for Abe Hamaday, good buddy of mine. Um, he would have been like the first young Republican ever elected attorney general. He's a really good guy, really good conservative. Biting tooth and nail through his court cases, um, he had to get it set up in Mojave County because no judge in Maricopa County, obviously, would hear the case. Um, so he made it to Mojave County to ask for a new trial. Um, the judge, unfortunately, said no, no trial. Um, so he's appealing it to the Supreme Court for, this, for the uh, Supreme Court of the state of Arizona. Um, so we'll see. Um, he's fighting tooth and nail, and there's ballots that still haven't been counted. Um, you know, and, I, and, I, and I'll name names. Rachel Mitchell, who's the county attorney for Maricopa, um, she hasn't been very helpful in the fact of getting those ballots that are left in Maricopa County. Um, we have to have a conservative county, Mojave, to the Yavapire Cochise, that will uh, take Abe's case, but obviously he's going to appeal it to the, to the Supreme Court. Um, whatever he needs, I'm backing him all the way. The legislature obviously signed on earlier in the year for an amicus brief supporting his case. It's, a, it's the closest race in the history of Arizona, and there's ballots that still haven't been counted. And um, we have to find a lever, a, a levy through the court system to actually do it. And, you know, um, it's, it's really interesting because this hasn't happened in hundreds of years. And there's over 100 years where there was a governor who did win. And after court cases, the, they was uh, overturned because it was within those margins as well. And so if an attorney general's race in a midterm is going to come down to 200 votes in Arizona, it could be similar for the presidential race. It could be similar for the United States Senate right. because the left has poured all of their money into Arizona after 2016 when they thought that Hillary was going to be able to beat Trump in Arizona. They came for revenge in 2018. They did it effectively again in 2020. They did it effectively again in 2022. So. Um, this is really kind of the last stand in Arizona because Abe Hamid's case has, has and re- uh, election has really uh, proven that.
0: Hmm. Wow. Well, hey, Celine, welcome into the chat. So, Will, uh, I lived in Arizona for several years. You're still currently in Arizona. So um, maybe just give us your initial reaction to a lot of what Austin just broke down there as someone who's currently a citizen in the swing state of Arizona.
3: It's profoundly upsetting. It's mm. profoundly upsetting and disturbing. I mean, yeah. not not you know what you said, not the, not the saying of it, but the the situation that it describes. Again, for the, for the same for the same reason that when an election comes down to two hundred votes, you know, at a at a at a county, a city, or or whatever precinct of that size, or a state, it's can't. How do you even say who won that election and when you start piecing apart where the votes came from and you start seeing it and then you can't even get a proper fair hearing trial it it, i feel this i feel this in my heart as an american i feel this in my heart as a citizen and i along with many people struggle against the feeling of despair when confronting the reality of that that the that the country that i grew up in that i still love is has a stranglehold over its electoral process which is supposed to make us unique as a nation, that there are these external strangleholds over our ability to conduct a free and fair election and even to audit a free and fair election. It, I feel this. I feel this in my heart. And so I'm really grateful, Austin. I think it was that you said, you know, where we've been uh, election interference or elections, integrity is defense. We need to be mm-hmm. playing offense. I appreciate that you framed it that way because that fires me up like, OK, no, no more of this defense like yeah. it's it's time to it's time to go to offense. For these things, so I appreciate you. That's gonna that's gonna resonate for a while.
0: Yeah. But. Well, Gavin, I want to bring you in on this because obviously you're in New York and you have a whole different beast there, and we're probably gonna reference that all night because I think you can give a unique perspective because you are used to fighting. Because if you are gonna be a conservative in New York, you're already starting. Uh, you know, 30 feet back from the starting line um, compared to your competition who starts about 30 feet uh, ahead of the starting line. So um, based on kind of what Austin's been uh, spelling out for us here, what do you see as being some of the the weaknesses currently that you see in Arizona, as well as um, maybe some opportunities that we can start to take advantage of?
2: Well, listen. I think Austin really went into the weeds and covered a lot of great ground. And I think what the the, the type of uh, seismic shifts we're seeing in Arizona it, it's it's a playbook that's been replicated, and Austin touched on it in a state like Colorado, which uh, you know maybe a decade or two ago was a Republican bastion still, and it started at the local level. And the uh, the left uh, they've mastered a lot of these ideologically neutral tactics to really take advantage of these institutions, the infrastructure, and build up this really. this this very effective and weaponized network to shift states uh, from being, you know, red bastions to blue bastions. And uh, the right has never been able to cope with that. And generally speaking, the right, you know, just talking about the rhetoric alone, it's always just like, well, as soon as a place begins to turn blue, you run, you flee, you surrender. And that goes back, again, to what Austin was talking about and what Will highlighted in terms of the offense versus defense. And we've seen, you know, the left has consistently tried to expand – their electoral map, you know, moving into different states, you know, they will spend billions in, 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 in unwinnable seats in Texas or in South Carolina, just to begin to seed the ground because they know that they're not playing one election cycle. They're not playing two election cycles. They're playing for the next generation. They're looking, how can we make seismic shifts that are going to impact this state, this County, the country as a whole over the next 10, 20, 30 years, they're playing the long game. We don't play the long game on the right and simultaneously another uh thread that i noticed in in what uh, austin was saying is that we're also fighting a two-front war uh you know we're obviously fighting the left and they're getting very smart with their ngo networks and all that but also we're fighting a simultaneous co-current fight with our own establishment which in many cases have the resources have the money have the capital and have the technical know-how to assist but not only do they choose in many times not to assist they actively uh subvert uh, their fellow Republicans, because they seem far more con- concerned not with winning elections and winning governing majorities, but rather with controlling the caucus and with with controlling their dominion within the party. They're much con- they're much more concerned with this intra-party fight rather than this inter-party fight between the right and the left. And that is a massive concern, and it's a problem because the Republican Party is going through its own realignment uh, during this entire process. The left. The left has had a different approach. They've basically taken on their insurgent left-wing movements and they've just moved further left, further left as, as fast as possible. And that's how they've sort of maintained this unity. And it's all based on sort of like a patronage system and power sharing and all that. And you know, the establishment in the Democrat Party is kind of, you know, they're not too ideological, but they just seed ground. To the left, whenever they can. On the other side, you have the Republican Party, and it's a constant civil war. We've seen several of these. Goes beyond just Trump. We had this with the Liberty Movement, then we had before with the Tea Party Movement. It's been a series of like inter inter signed fights within the Republican Party uh, for leadership, and it's really you know it, it inhibited us from winning uh, in states we should be winning by the margins uh, we should be winning in, and uh, a lot of these grassroots candidates are sort of left by the wayside. Uh, and left to fend for themselves against far more uh, well-funded candidates with far more infrastructure. So, you know, we're seeing, like I mentioned, the the, the Colorado strategy, the strategy where they're infiltrating these blue states. And obviously some of this is just you know demographic trends it's people moving in it's these cities turning into political machines and, and those things happen and a lot of times you see republican states actively welcome it you've seen this sort of pro-corporate approach by many republican states say and you know in georgia with the movie credits you know giving tons of tax breaks to hollywood i knew a lot of left-wing friends of mine from new york who moved from brooklyn to atlanta and they were following the movie industry and you know it was, it was pitched as a pro-business approach to politics and it just ended up turning that state uh more competitive you saw similar trends elsewhere you know welcoming the tech companies you're seeing it in places like austin and texas and all the rest and it's it's constantly self-defeating it's self-defeating policies where you know austin was talking about how the shifts in control of the legislature the state legislature when we have this control we have this power we immediately implement policies that elevate Uh, You know, the cohorts that oppose our views and we don't support the cohorts that do support our views. The left is very good at rewarding loyalty. So they understand that you have people that have more college education, that are single, that don't own homes, that work in certain industries. Those people tend to vote for them. So they elevate them. Republicans, we look at the map and we say, okay, Christians vote for us. Small business owners vote for us families vote for us, but then when it comes to supporting or incentivizing those groups, you know, then all of a sudden it's a small government. But this is, we're bleeding into a broader ideological discussion there. But um, I also wanted to touch really quickly on a point that Will made earlier as well, that it isn't just an electoral political fight. I fully agree. It's multifaceted. We have the cultural fight. We have the spiritual fight, which I think is the most important. But at the same time, and you made this point, Will, we can't just say it's one or the other. And I think sometimes we've seen uh, a lot of people say, you know, I'm, I'm avoiding politics completely. I'm avoiding the culture mm-hmm. wars and I'm focusing on one thing. And that's where we lose. And I think that I don't remember the exact number. I looked it up earlier. There's a massive uh, gap. Uh, if you look at the Christ- Christians, in the United States, how many are unregistered? How many are not registered to vote? How many don't vote? And if you take that, just a fraction of that, of that, uh, that gap in terms of, you know, Christians that are, voting and Christians that are not voting, we would win every election. So again, it comes down to the numbers are there, like Austin said, structurally, a place like Arizona is a conservative state, the numbers are there in Mojave County, the numbers are there with Christians across the country as a whole, but we haven't really energized them, we haven't worked them, we haven't really brought them into a coherent uh, system and infrastructure to Turn out electoral wins and thus you know bring about an American national new. As far as New York is concerned, I think you know New York is actually uh, it's an interesting place. We just saw Lee Zeldin come in the mid the upper 40s in a place like New York. We're seeing a resurgence of the Republican Party in the outer boroughs of New York City. Uh, We're seeing, you know, a tidal wave of Republicans elected on Long Island. There's certainly been pushback. I think New York, uh, it's kind of a, it's more of a cyclical state. It's a cyclical city. Uh, We've hit a point where it was so much one party dominated nonsense that there was eventually going to be, you know, a swing back on the pendulum in the other way. Um, And I think a large part of the success and the wins that we've had in the Republican Party in New York has largely been this sort of just organic counter, counter swing against the one party dominance in Albany. Um, but at the same time, I think if the Republican Party in New York, and obviously more broadly, I'm going to be biased because of my views, if they embraced a far more populist you know style approach to politics, I think they would find a lot of fertile ground in a place like New York. I think mm-hmm. in New York, we've seen the suburban, you know we've seen the loss of the suburbs, but that predated Trump. We were losing the suburbs in New York on Long Island and Westchester long before Trump. We lost the state Senate years ago. We lost, you know, tons of assemblymen and tons of members of Congress in New York long before Trump emerged on the scene. And then when you see. Trump's election, and you see the numbers he's doing in certain neighborhoods, in certain communities, in Brooklyn, and Queens, and Staten Island, in in these uh, in these urban areas. You're seeing a shift. You're seeing a shift of a new, you know, working class style Republican. A new, you know, it's a Hispanic working class. It's a white working class. It's a different style Republican from the old country club. And the numbers are there. And if we were to embrace that in a place like New York, I think we would actually begin to see a reversion in trends. We'd begin to see a growth in the party. Uh, the growth in the number of elected officials and starting to turn this one-party state back to something sort of competitive. Uh, but for the longest time, places like New York, places like California, they were the model for the left. They wanted to turn the entire country... Into effectively a one-party state where you know the opposition, token opposition, would get thirty something percent of the vote. They can't do anything legislatively. They're basically just you know pawns for you know some kind of bipartisan theatrics. And that was it. And then the left run you know wild with anything they wanted to do. I think in New York, it's pretty much been that way. I think there are trends that are moving in the right direction. Um, if we're going to capitalize on them, though, it's it's going to take money. It's going to take resources. It's going to take energy. It's an expensive media market. And even though that there are baseline trends moving in our, our direction, uh, if we don't have any sort of ideological understanding of why it's happening, if we don't actually have uh, our pulse on the realignment, our pulse on the grassroots and the movement, you know, the gains that say Lee Zeldin made are just going to evaporate in a cycle. And and we're not going to be able to turn that from a one off into a consistent, healthy. Progression towards, uh, you know, a Republican. Uh, Renaissance in the state, which I think could happen. And I think it could, you know, be in our lifetimes. It's not going to happen overnight. But beyond New York, look at the Northeast. We saw a gubernatorial election in 21 in New Jersey that was within a few points. Where was the RNC? Where were the Republican establishment? That right. could have been flipped. Uh, we we saw we saw a flip in Virginia. We saw a path there, uh, you know, for a certain brand of Republicanism to win a state like Virginia. So there are a lot of places that we've actually seen successes, and that the Republican Party has had very little imagination in expanding them. And in fact, you know, the house majority ran through New York and this again is a state that's largely overlooked by Republicans. So, I think they need to get past sort of the old dated electoral college or the electoral view of the country that, you know, the states that were safe in 2000 are not the same states that are safe today and the states that were competitive in 2000 it's like we're running 20 years behind. It's like they're on Windows XP still. It's like they're just they're just several cycles <laughs> behind and they don't get it. And they don't get it. And then all of a sudden they're shocked. They're like, oh, my God, New Jersey was close. Oh, my God, New York was close. Oh, my God, we won all these congressionals in New York. And it's like, yeah, because we don't we don't even test the waters. The left will throw money in South Carolina. The left will throw money in Texas just to test the waters. They'll see they'll spend, you know, however many millions just to see what's our max. What are we maxing this cycle with beta? Okay, so now we have some numbers that are kind of concrete. Okay, in 10 years, maybe we can flip Texas. That's how the left thinks. And right. on the on the reverse side, we should be spending that kind of money in Michigan and Wisconsin and PA. I mean, we were talking about the map earlier. I do think, you know, Trump is going to Erie this weekend. This right. is not an early primary state. This is not a state that, you know, is going to be very influential in the primary. That's a general election move. That's yeah, a general right. election move. But Erie County is the purplest county. He's in the
0: shift. State.
2: Yeah, And uh, he sees that, and it's also close to Ohio and all the rest. It's a strategic location. But, you know, our path to the election uh, in 2024 really runs through the Rust Belt. And uh, I think a lot of the stuff I just touched on with sort of the populist shift, you know, we'll get into it later, I'm sure. But it really ties back to the Rust Belt, but also holding ground in the Sun Belt. And I think, you know... Arizona is a huge part of that, but we talked about Nevada. I think Nevada is realigning. I think there's trends in Nevada that are fantastic, and uh, I think they could be taken advantage of. And we need to, you know, we need to spend money there. We need to move that needle, and uh, you know, expand the map. So we're not looking at three toss-ups. We're looking at five toss-ups, and that's a much better path and a lot more reassurance going forward with that padding.
0: Right. Everything that you said is is uh, to me if I was to sum up kind of a lot of what you were saying, especially when you brought up, uh, like the, so many registered, um, churchgoers that are not voting. Ultimately politics is the left's religion. Right. Um, ultimately it is a lot of what gives an atheistic worldview purpose. Um, you know, that's a lot of where social justice comes in. I mean, social justice, even you could argue got it's birthing from, uh, incorrect theology within the church. Right. And, you know, ultimately there are, uh, Individuals who are focused in on this infighting, and um, you know, a lot of that's because there's a large portion of people that are more conservative leaning or apolitical that ultimately just want to be left alone. And of course, the right. party that wants to be left alone is always going to lose to the party that wants to control everything. We know this. We see this. A lot of people in the chat were uh, were talking about uh, Californians coming and changing their state. They were talking about that with Colorado and uh, so many of these other states. Arizona obviously has been affected by Californians. Um, You know, A lot of people that are fleeing right now are actually pretty conservative coming from California, and it is changing the demographics just all around. But either way, uh, ultimately, us on the right who want to be left alone, we just want to start our businesses. We want to start our families. We want to go to church on Sundays. We want to just focus in on our spiritual life. Um, This is where we do need to some degree to engage because the reality is um, we're so focused on... Uh, You know, just preaching the gospel. Well, ultimately, the gospel is going to have a really hard time spreading under a totalitarian regime if, uh, you know, if it gets to that point. And the reality is we are trending that way. We're not there yet. Obviously, we've lost, I I would say that we truly have lost some freedoms in this country. Um, That's pretty evident uh, um, by a lot of what we've seen over the past couple of years. But uh, look at what the the left does. You know,
2: so so I was gonna say, look at what the left does. I mean, they 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 infiltrate everything. It's their Fabian Long March to the institutions and the churches are no exception. I yeah. mean, they'll take over these these churches and they'll wear, you know, this religion like you know, like like a cloak and it's totally masquerading and they're totally twisting scripture and twisting uh, religion to suit themselves and then you and then they wonder you know why all these woke churches are empty and like you walk I, in New York I see all these woke churches and you walk by and it's completely empty I mean it's like it's like cobwebs um, yeah. they're destroying these institutions systematically and they're not just playing you know electorally they're playing systematically they're they're taking over corporate boardrooms they're taking over churches they're taking over businesses I mean they're taking over schools. Um, You know, they're not just playing, you know, uh, a game of, you know, electoral politics, they're playing a much more insidious, uh, long term game. And I do agree, it's their religion. I mean, it's not, we can't think of this in purely political terms, because like you said, they've replaced their transcendence uh, in a higher being with with this transcendence in terms of this really warped ideology, which in many ways, I mean, you know, if if you checklist of what is a religion they check a few boxes i mean they have yeah. they have
0: their they have their own yeah, scriptures. sin they have their orthodoxy yeah How their bible is
1: there. a handbook i mean yeah. it's, still, it's <laughs> COVID, climate change like that that's yep. the father and the son right there like yeah it,
0: absolutely <laughs> yeah and that that's a lot of what this podcast is focused on you know we're called forge and anvil because the whole point is that we are hammering out uncomfortable conversations you know the forge and the anvil are two symbols of of sharpening yourself and it's not done you know when when iron sharpens iron it's not two irons kind of get up to each other hug one another it's you know it's a violent act you know and and the reality is i'm hoping that these conversations that uh, many of the apolitical churchgoers do not want to have um you know i hope these conversations slightly make you uncomfortable um With a desire that you would be called to action because there's not a single realm that Christ does not call out and claim that that is mine and that includes the realm of politics. Um, Obviously, like Will said earlier, we don't want to find our hope in politics, but of course, um, to not be engaged is ultimately to watch uh, uh, freedom of religion and the ability to even gather as believers and not have to be an underground church. You know, we can debate theology all day long, but ultimately we're going to be debating from a jail cell if there's not uh, some proper change. Um, you know, with with how we're running things here. Uh, that being said, I want to dive into um, into a more specific area here by talking about the Arizona U.S. Senate race. So this is from the center square. So it says the Democrat Congressman Ruben Gallego, Republican Pinal County Sheriff Mark Lamb and independent. Cinema, wow. Senator Kirsten Sinema uh, released their quarter two fundraising numbers in Arizona Senate this week, which paints a clearer picture of the race in its early days. Gallego raised $3.1 million in the quarter, which runs from April 1st to June 30th, whereas Lamb raised over 607000 The Democrat entered the race in January, and he's quickly accumulated a war chest. Lamb waited till Friday to release his numbers, which also show that he has $335,000 in cash on hand and spent over $272,000. Notably, his wife, Janelle Lamb, was paid nearly $5,000 by the campaign for strategic strategic consulting and mileage costs. So... Um, Actually, I do want to keep going here just a little bit more. Um, Lamb is the only one in the race for the Republican nomination, which has arguably come to a standstill as former gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake has continuously said she is considering a bid to replace Cinema. So um, there's more to that article. I'm just kind of giving you the the, uh, brief breakdown. But the Senate race is another opportunity here for us to pick up some ground on the federal level all through the same state of Arizona that we've been focused so heavily on tonight. Um, one of the things that I found interesting specifically about the setup, uh, first and foremost, we do see the, uh, uh, the discrepancy between the fundraising, uh, obviously our opponent is much more, uh, well-funded than, uh, uh, than, um, Lamb, but ultimately something that I, I wanted to, I guess, ask, um, both of you, um, Gavin and Austin, and of course, Will, you're welcome to chime in here as well, um. But it did talk about Carrie Lake wanting to um, potentially throw her hat in the ring for the Senate. Um, Now, I love Carrie Lake, and I think that she would be a great senator, of course. I really see her more being executive, at least with the way that I've seen her um, campaign. Um, But ultimately, it did make a point to say that uh, that thing kind of slowed down with her sort of tiptoeing the idea of should she or shouldn't she step into the race? So my thought is that I think Carrie just needs to either announce or choose to abstain because it seems like this is potentially hurting Lamb's ability to fundraise right now. I mean, Austin, is that anywhere accurate, do you think?
1: Well, yeah, I can agree to a part of it. Um, but, you know, Mark Lamb, great guy, good conservative. He's done really well for our state here as a sheriff, um, runs his department really well, really an upstanding guy. But that's a high burn rate. And um, if I was on the campaign, if I was his consultant or his campaign manager, I would say we have a problem here. Regardless if Kerry Lake is jumping into this race or not that we don't know, Um, we just spent a lot of money on a guy that, you know, has somewhat of a good name ID within the Republican Party already in Arizona. Uh, I don't know who his consultants are, um, but that's pretty high to be spending that much money after he's only been announced for a few months. So in my opinion, that's kind of unacceptable. Mm -hmm. But really, in Arizona, like we're talking about, you know, the mechanics of the state between like like I was going to raise 30, 40 million. Cinema's going to raise $34 She's going to have a lot of the corporate money come behind her. She's already got name ID. She's won before. Gallego is, is the left's darling in Arizona and within the party. He's had Pelosi come out here and uh, raise some money for him. But at the end of the day, Ronald Reagan and uh, Richard Nixon could be on the ballot and we'll probably still lose Arizona regardless of who is the Senate nominee right now because we don't have the mechanics. And so the reason I say that is because, you know, Mitch McConnell has already signaled that he is not going to spend money on a MAGA Republican if it becomes the Republican nominee for the Senate in Arizona. That's a problem. So what that does is it signals to establishment donors in the state that I'm not going to give money to Carrie Lake if she becomes a nominee. So you could have you could have donors that are saying, well, maybe if, you know, I don't know how many exactly. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, Carrie Lake and Katie Hobbs, two completely different candidates when they ran for governor this last right. time Katie Hobbs never campaigned, extremely unpopular. She won on the margins. This is going to be a three-way race. You know, is going to have $40 million. Gallego's going to have $30, 40000000 Our Republican nominee is going to need the same amount of money. But if they have that same amount of money and there still isn't that infrastructure, that outside support, that mechanics here to chase ballots, to have our own team of Mark Elias's, we're not going to win. Mark Lamb was a good candidate. I think Mark Lamb could probably win in this three-way race. I think Carrie Lake could win in this three-way race if we have the mechanics in place and possible uh, Republican turnout is going to go up if Donald Trump, if, and when Donald Trump becomes the Republican nominee. That's just a fact. That's what, that's what the numbers are going to point to. Um, you know, I can tell you from personal experience being in the legislature. So I'm in the Arizona freedom caucus. We know we're, we're a third of the Republican members in the Arizona house and the Senate. Um, we have been able to, you know, we've, we've been talking about, um, you know, the election stuff that we've done, the legislation that we've done really did really did well this last cycle because we put Katie Hobbs, on the defensive, um, being you know rabble rousing freshman legislators in the Freedom Caucus, more conservative populist types compared to other times in the past, really taking back that ground. The 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 stage that we set in 2024 to play offense regarding elections, voter registration, pack you know uh, pack support, C four support, what the legislature does really is going to have to be a uh, rising tide lift all votes. What the with Gavin p- spoke about this earlier, the left is always finding ways. Um, to, you know, they test the waters to dump a million into this state, to dump a million. They're willing to put, you know, uh, their their C4s and their PACs and their NGOs and their nonprofits off to the side with, you know, 10 or 15 million. And they said, you know, what, we're going to target three or four smaller legislative districts in Arizona with a million dollars in outside spending. Hopefully they're having a rising tides lift all boats. We're missing that in states like Arizona. We're missing states like that in Nevada, because if we get that kind of stuff. It's a perfect storm for our nominee. Right. And so whether it's Mark Lamb or Kerry Lake, if we don't have that rising tides, lift all boat mentality, we're going to have a very hard time. And so this, these right. races are still going to be one on the margin. I want to bring up something else that we were talking about that that will was talk, that will mentioned that, you know, it's, it's kind of disgusting and discouraging that we're at this point right now. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have other establishment Republicans and moderate Republicans and the mainstream Republicans like David Schweiker, perfect example. Who, you know, for the longest time in Arizona was a more conservative member when he was, you know, first came into the Freedom Caucus in the House. He left the Arizona or the, the House Freedom Caucus because he blamed the local Arizona Freedom Caucus. He said that we were too populist, we were too conservative. Well, really, that's you know, kind of like you know, uh, kicking the can down the road trying to blame somebody else from, from your mistakes. You can't have Republicans running for office attacking the conservative base. A perfect example is this woman named shauna bullock who was a state house representative ran for secretary of state this last time lost the primary to mark fincham she just got recently appointed back to the state senate for resignation and attacked the arizona freedom caucus you can't have your candidates attacking the republican base and this is yeah. something that has happened to many many candidates across the country that we just cannot afford anymore because in the past you know the establishment would win a republican primary And conservatives, we would, okay, we would dust ourselves off and we would get back in line to, you know, you know, vote for the guy with the R. The establishment doesn't do the same exact thing for the conservatives when we win the primary. And so my biggest fear is that in Arizona, Carrie Lake becomes the nominee. They're going to do that again because they did leave her out to dry. They left Blake Masters out to dry. They left Abe Hommade out to dry. They left Mark Fincham out to dry. And so unless the conservative base, we have to be the ones to win these elections by the margins, ballot chasing. Um, you know, poll watching, poll observing, volunteering, everything that we can do to win these races, because cinema is going to have that army. Diego going to have that army. We're going to have to continue to build it from the grassroots up here in Arizona. And the last thing I'll mention is, you know, Gavin talking about what they did in New York. It, you know, taking back the House ran through New York 100 percent. United States Senate will likely not run through Arizona. It will go through other states. It will have mm-hmm. to go through other states because the let the, 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 the Republican establishment. Has so much vitriol and hate for conservative, and especially here in Arizona, because it was controlled by John McCain, the Koch right. brothers, and Doug Ducey for the longest. Doug Ducey alone spent hundred thousand dollars propping up my opposition and outside spending in the Republican primary. So they're they're willing to take their their ball and go home. And so that's you know really got to think here, you know, just because we get Carrie Lake nominated doesn't mean we're going to win or Mark Lamb, because right. the Republican establishment has proven time and time again. If you nominate a MAGA or a conservative, a, you know, a traditional conservative, a populist, they will leave you out to dry. And so we have to mentally prepare ourselves that we're going to be spending, you know, hopefully 12, 13 hours a day as grassroots people chasing these ballots, or we're not going to win whether we have the money or not.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point.
3: Yeah.
0: Hmm. Will, did you want to respond? I know you were mentioned there. So,
3: yeah. Um, thank you guys. And, and Earlier, I can't remember what it was in response to, but earlier I was thinking that in between the 1970s and the 1980s, there was a giant shift that happened in American culture when we went from a culture of producers to a a culture of uh, consumers. That was the big shift that happened from 1970 to 1980, uh, especially with the arrival of Ronald Reagan and, and a lot of the outsourcing of manufacturing to China. And so everything that's evolved in the past, say, 40 or so years, has been an emphasis on the american consumer not the american producer and i look at a lot of these uh, con- a lot of these republicans who are attacking the conservatives as part of that emphasizing the american consumer not the american producer which means that they have to be allied to international interests and they abandon the american small business owner they abandon the american middle class voter in favor of these internationalist interests and that's the biggest tragedy to see is is a lot of the highest profile, quote, Republicans, not actually caring about the everyday concerns of the American people. And we saw it with Mike Pence, right? Well, that's not my concern. Like, <laughs> bro, what? <laughs> like,
0: that was lovely.
3: That was wild. That was absolutely wild. And so I, I guess... The, the distinction that I wanted to introduce around the word Christian, and maybe this can help introduce some subjects to how we can think about this, is I'm reading this book right now. This is just the dust jacket because the book's in the room. Uh, the Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy Piercy. This is a great book, uh, just getting into, and she has a distinction in here around the word Christian, and what she says, and, and this is around, um, it's around uh, domestic abuse statistics. There's a there's a narrative that runs in in the public. About how Christian households are the most abusive, et cetera. And what actually, when you piece that apart, what you find is that the the households of, of, of Christian fathers who attend church regularly, like three or more times a month, actually have the have the lowest rates of domestic abuse in the country, the highest rates of marital satisfaction, the highest rates of sexual satisfaction in a marriage. So this but meanwhile, on the other side, you see the exact opposite with quote unquote, nominal Christians, people who identify as Christians, but don't actually put their faith into practice. Mm-hmm. The faithful Christians who attend church and are involved regularly in the church are actually the core of the, of the American Christian faith. And those are the ones that we want to bring up and cultivate. And I think one of, the things, um, one of the things that seems so striking is that the interests of those voters are exactly 180 degrees opposite of the interests of the left. Abortion is a great example. So finding candidates that are willing to run on the issues that those Christian voters care about, the true heartbeat of America kind of people, I think that'll be key to any candidate winning. And I think that speaks to a lot of Trump's success was that he was willing to he's willing to make that they called it a deal, but he delivered on the deal. And so maybe candidates that are willing to activate and speak to the things that I care about will be the key. And of course, that will be hated by the Republican establishment. But maybe there's a way forward with that.
0: It's a lot about what Austin was saying about, uh, or actually it was Gavin that was saying this about uh, the, the left, they they repay their own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I think Trump, I mean, because if we're just being super blunt, I don't think Trump is, or at least was, super pro-life. I mean, the reality is he was no. a Democrat his whole his whole life. You know, he, he did kind of talk, he had a bit of a conversion story when he learned a little bit more about the science behind it, as a lot of people have over the past, you know, 15, 20 years. But still, the reality is, I think Trump was not, you know, necessarily a staunch, um, you know, abolitionist, but he was willing to put proper conservative um, uh, justices on the Supreme he Court. Well, you know, he, was, he delivered to his base. That's ultimately what I'm getting at here. He delivered on multiple fronts, but please. Either I, you I, I was
2: talking to someone earlier today. I mean, it's just it, a lot of, you know, the old institutional, even so-called conservatives, but institutional Republicans. I mean, they, you know, George Bush would call in, to the uh, to the march for life and people right. would be like, oh my God, he called in we can't believe and Trump Jordan actually Biden. went. Trump went and like they held these old Republicans to such a different standard. That, you know, oh, Bush is elected. We have the Congress. We're, we're going to get something done. We're going to pass an amendment. We're going to repeal Roe. And it went like that, you know, pre-Bush went like that for how many decades? Two, three, four decades that we were. they were talking about this. And it was like, oh, the Republicans are going to deliver. The Republicans are going to deliver. And, you know, they said all the right things. And that was part of like the whole bargain that they had with these neoconservatives and the evangelicals or the social cons. They said, don't worry, don't worry. We'll we're going to we're going to take care of you. We're going to get these things taken care of. You know, just keep voting for us, keep donating to us and keep sending your sons to die overseas. But we'll we'll certainly get to the abortion issue any minute now. And then Trump comes on the scene. And I think, you know, I think it's fair to say what you just said, that he wasn't exactly a social conservative by any means, you know, coming through this. I think he was traditionalist. I think he's a, and I think there's a distinction. there. I think he has a lot of traditional values, uh, but I don't necessarily think he was like a very socially conservative guy. I think he evolved. And at the end of the day, he delivered. He got it done. And despite that, you still you still see people coming after him like he wasn't good enough. And they they attack him from the right when he was the one that actually delivered on these things. And then they're trying to find ways to undercut it and to diminish it and all the rest. And I just think it's so disingenuous. And it just goes to show the vitriol that that Austin was alluding to. There's such vitriol. In the party ranks right now, from you know our side to theirs, their side to us, that it, it it it's more vitriol internally than it is externally towards the Dems and the left. And the Dems and the, lo- the left love it, and they're they're certainly fueling the flames when they can. Uh, but they're certainly also trying to make examples, and that's what the establishment does. They purposely try to you know subvert mm-hmm. and sabotage candidates and movements, and then say, "See, we told you guys you should have listened to us. You lost mm-hmm. your race, even though we spent no money, we did nothing to help you, and we actively tried to hurt you." But listen, we got you. You guys should have just been moderates and you would have won. And that's never how it works. And then when they do win, then they still find another excuse. And it's a never ending you know, narrative formation and counter narrative formation that they try to engage in to push back. But I also love what Will said uh, about the sort of consumerist society. I think that's absolutely true. I think this is a really macro level topic. But it's absolutely fundamental that we have shifted from being a producer, a producing country to a consuming country. And with that, it's not just the economic implications. It is the cultural implications, the spiritual implications. You know, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing this sort of runaway capitalism and people are just they they don't have anything but platitudes. And I'm a capitalist. I'm a free market guy. But they don't have anything but platitudes about the free market. And then we're saying, well, what we're seeing right now is this sort of cultural degeneration and uh we're seeing just like this hedonistic lifestyle take hold and it's sh- and you can't have a free society you can't have this republican form of government with these with these values with these rights with this constitution with this bill of rights if your whole cultural and religious fabric is completely sunk and and turned to mush um these things matter and they they don't they're not easy to quantify you know you can't quantify all of these types of These types of things that make a society healthy and make a society robust and allow a society to be high trust and allow a society to be able to sustain itself and its institutions. It's hard to quantify and it's not always going to fit in into a pure, you know, economic theorem of supply and demand. But these things matter. The founders understood that. They talked about it. And and I think we've lost that in the conservative movement over the years because we've moved from a movement that's taught conserving things, conserving a tradition, conserving a lifestyle, conserving an American way of life, conserving all these, these kind of you know harder to define, non-tangible things, and we've turned into exclusively a party that only talks about you know GDP in the chamber of commerce. Yeah. It's become the chamber of commerce republican party. Uh, that has been promoting things. And, you know, I saw Twitter threads today talking about, you know, things like the first place, the second place and the third place. First place is your home. Second place is your job. And third place is something else. And I think that's something that Americans have lost because it's really just been kind of like this, you know, uh, race, rat race to the bottom, consuming society, all consuming uh, with nothing else mattering. And I think that's a kind of a big impetus for problems we're facing today.
3: I saw your tweets about the third place and I really appreciated you digging into that because we've lost a sense of community in America. Where where do we as people go to gather to be with each other and talk rather than engaged in some other activity like watching a sports game like where can we go to meet each other and for the work that i do where can men go to meet with other men right. in, in male only environments i think those that's another thing we've lost
2: the fraternal organizations you know got killed and died and it's and you, yeah. you, you used to see i mean in new york i mean new york used to be you know All these different clubs and these organizations—I mean, every there was something for everybody—and it was sort of part of the fabric. And people, you know, even in my club, you know, because it's such an old club, 100 years ago, I look back at the old records, and it was just wild that way back then, You know the amount of time they dedicated and devoted to all these little things with all these different organizations and they were part of all these boards and all these things people don't do that anymore you you see the guys because and back then 100 years ago it was like these new york lawyers during like the great depression they were the people that ran the club and they were doing all these sorts of things on the side all you know philanthropic you know social charitable for for political organizations whatever today you you don't see that i think those 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 communities have sort of died and it's really just work home work home And uh, I think if you're just looking at it in an economic, you know, mindset, it it may make sense to you, but in other senses, it doesn't.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Susie Hughes said, because they propagated the patriarchy. Yeah. I I won't get Will started on that because that could be in a whole other other uh, (laughs) hour-long podcast on that alone, uh, especially with the content Will does. But uh, uh, Austin, it looked like you wanted to say something, and then I wanted to move on to our next topic, but feel free to jump in uh, if you have something.
1: You know, the community involvement thing. Um, we've lost that in this country but so like i'm a member of the my elks lodge where you know where i live and you know because that's a it's a that's about community we take care of our veterans we take care of you know um children in the community those are things that are, like really important my parents have been members of the elk lodge you know, the last four or five years um and it's one of the best little community gatherings that i've been around because people who share your values people who give back to their community that you know they're talking about the consumer part of it and why the left has taken so much ground from from the right or people who are apolitical um, you know, you got to be like a precinct committeeman. If you're a registered Republican, you got to put some, some, uh, some uh, time and, and your own tongue and cheek into the party. You got to show up at your school board meetings. You got to be involved in your homeowners association because everything there. Unfortunately, you know, we talk about you know, culture drives our politics. Well, now politics is driving our culture, unfortunately. And so you've got to be involved in your PTA. You got to be involved in HOA. You've Got to be involved in like your local legislative district Republican committee, your central, your county committee. All those things matter because it's starting to add up, and the left has figured that out. And those little institutions have a lot of sway over our everyday lives. They've already taken over the big stuff, but you know the, the bedrock, the nuts and bolts, the butt, bread and butter stuff that makes communities strong, dads have got to be precinct committeemen. They've got to run for school board. They've got to be involved in the PTA. They've got to right. be involved in the church committee. They've got to recruit people that are in their Bible studies with them to go knock doors on the weekends, to find candidates that are godly men and women to run for office because um, nobody's really stepped up to do that because we've forgotten about that being a consumer society, the rat race at the bottom that Gavin was talking about. And so the community involvement is critical you know, to, to establishing that very safe community and ultimately saving you know, your state and your country.
0: Well, for crying out loud, I mean, we have a giant uh, movement going on right now, Moms for Liberty. Uh, like, like where? Are, where's the dads? You know, and and honestly, a lot of it's because we need permission. Um, and Will, I know you do a lot of work on this. So, um, Renaissance of Men for you who want to know more. Uh, Will's mm-hmm. podcast is great; dives a lot more into these topics. But men do need permission, and that's uh, that's definitely something that. We don't have time to go into further tonight. I love philosophy, and I want to I want to talk about it more. But I do want to get to this as well because this is kind of a, an area where philosophy and um, uh, technicalities of politics intersect. So I'm going to use this uh, this tweet from Steve Dace, or if we even call it a tweet anymore, this his ex. I don't know what we're going to oh. call it. We'll we'll find that out. That's a whole other. Whole others. <laughs> next trail week that we can go on. on. Yeah, next Animal. week. Next week on Fortune anvil stay tuned. Next Monday, eight PM Central. <laughs> so from Steve Dace, these are states Republicans haven't won in a presidential election in almost forty years, nineteen eighty four, and how many votes Trump received from them in twenty twenty? California, six million. New York, three million. I'm just rounding these numbers for you guys. Massachusetts, one million. Uh, Connecticut, seven hundred thousand. Minnesota. 1.5 million, Oregon, 1 million, Washington, 1.5 million, Illinois, 2.5 million. That's 17 million again. I'm rounding for you. Essentially, wasted votes in a presidential election decided by less than 50,000 total votes in Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin, which, if swung the other way, would mean the Biden presidency would have never happened and we'd be much better off as a country. But Steve, some of you will lecture me, one of the first people on election night who was pointing out the fraud in real time and got the entire... Blaze Facebook channel demonetized for pointing out they were stealing the election. They just steal more votes, so it is pointless. And then I'm not going to read his point number one because uh, what they're going to do is they're going to clip me reading that point that uh, Steve made here, and then they're going to um, run it as ads against Austin in uh, in his next election and say that he associates with extremists. So uh, <laughs> moving on to point two, look at how hard and obvious they had to cheat to win by less than fifty thousand boy votes. Excuse me. If just 1% of these people would evacuate their blue state hellholes and had spread out to Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin, that's 170,000 more votes for Trump or more than four times what they could conjure to claim they won in 2020. If just 10% or 1.7 million of our people left these places and also spread out to places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, instead Democrats would be screwed. We are a country founded by pilgrims who had to move away to find freedom to preserve this country as patriots. We may have to become such pilgrims again. So this is something that a lot of people have talked about the idea of moving for essentially electoral gain. Um, and of course, there's a lot of other reasons why a person should consider moving. This is just one of the many reasons, um, of, uh, of a way that your move could be effective towards, um, reversing some of the decline that we see in our country right now. Um, there's actually a debate going on. Um, Austin Gavin, I don't know how well you guys follow this, but there is a debate among a lot of the theological minded podcasts about uh, whether or not it's even, uh, correct to move from a blue state or whether or not you should stay in a blue state for the sake of evangelism and so many other things. And, um, we can get into that. I myself, am not decided on this issue because honestly, when I'm talking just polit- political reasons, um, I can see pros and cons to this. Um, you know, obviously what Steve laid out there is accurate. If, if so many conservative people from California, New York, places like this move to um, these swing states, we could see a big shift, but um, obviously we see that uh, Congress was won through states like New York and California. So um, I guess 1st we'll, I'll turn it to you to see your initial reaction. And then Gavin, I definitely want to pick your brain on this because I know that you living in New York, I think you can testify to the effectiveness that conservatives can have in that state. But Will, I first wanted to turn it to you to get your initial reaction to this.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I, I advise all my friends to get out of blue states to leave China, right? And I like what Joel Webin says about this. That's that's the joke that I always tell my, yeah, fr- Joel's my friends. Joel's the one
0: that started this whole thing. I mean, yeah, good job, Joel. You got everyone in hot water. Now go ahead.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I hear. Let them. Ha- okay, I lived in San Francisco for for 15 or so years 10 15 years right and so look at the videos coming out of san francisco now it's the zombie apocalypse look at oakland look at san francisco right let them live in the consequences of their poor decisions and that's the only way some of these people are going to wake up if at all and look, I know how hardened these some of the, some of the people are on the left to their own ideology. And I'll, I'll tell you guys, I was part of Occupy Wall Street for a while. It was a big part of my awakening process, right? To to go into the heart of that and see how mentally ill many at the core of the left are. I was like, wow, this is, does not seem healthy. And so that helped lead me out of that a long time ago. But the thing is, like, they're not just magically magically going to stop what they're doing. It is their it is their religion, right? Now there are plenty of good people that are caught in the middle that just can't let go of the guilt and the shame they feel at existing. Right. And in order for them to wake up to the reality of how dangerous this leftist ideology is, what it's become, you have to let them see the consequences. You have to let them see the feces on the streets. You have to let them see the, the homeless drug addicts walking around on PCP screaming at the sky, which is a regular occurrence in San Francisco. It's so dangerous in that city in a way that most people can't comprehend. And so uh, for, for, I don't understand why conservatives or religious conservatives would stay in these places. I, I literally don't understand it, especially when, there's, when so much uh, of, uh, of these leftist economies are fleeing, like Oracle. I lived in San Francisco. Oracle Open World was a huge deal in San Francisco. They would take over several city blocks once a year. You could see the concerts from the you could hear the concerts from the whole city. Oracle Open World pulled out and left San Francisco, which is like a huge support of the economy. This is happening. And so I don't understand how conservatives or religious conservatives can remain in these environments and say, Yeah, it's it'll be fine. It'll be fine. They they don't seem to want to take that. Meanwhile, there are communities that could really use their support around the country. And so, I encourage anyone to leave who can leave to leave, hmm. um, because there are people around the country who need you. I've got some counter arguments you. for that, but not you're necessarily
0: wrong. because I disagree with you fully. Because I I agree with a lot of what you're saying. It's more of devil's advocate sure. um, arguments that I, I want to bring up. But first, I'll, I'll turn it to Gavin because Gavin may bring up some of them. So I'll I'll let him uh, have first shot at it.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I I have some mixed views on this. I think uh, the the tweet by Steve, it's a little simplistic. I think that's happening. I mean, there is a red migration out of blue states already happening. And I think it's strengthened, you know, say Florida, for example. I think a lot of that is just going to states that are already red, though. It's not necessarily going to purple states, which is really the, the basis of his of his electoral strategy. It really only makes sense if they're going into purple states or states that are transitioning to be purple. I don't think another 200,000 New Yorkers moving to Florida is going to change the name of the game. And the other the and the other part of the problem is is that those 200,000 New Yorkers if they're going to uproot their life, are they really going to move to Michigan? I mean, yeah, is Michigan a little better, but a lot of the problems Michigan faces are similar to New York, likewise maybe Pennsylvania or uh, Wisconsin. I mean, these are states that are purple. Well, their the un-
0: governors both killed old people, so there's that.
2: Exactly. So it, it it's it's a tough argument to sell. It sounds Yikes. better if it's if it's simply blue to red, but blue to red doesn't do anything. And in fact, COVID saw a lot of blue to red because it, it concentrated our votes in areas that we didn't need it to be more concentrated in. And in fact, it made some of these purple states less competitive because they're not just moving from New York. They're moving from Michigan. They're moving from Wisconsin. They're moving from Pennsylvania. They're very places that we need to keep competitive. So it, it's kind of it, the post that Steve wrote is very, very like theoretical and and it's not realistic in any sense there is already that kind of migration that's happening and i think a lot of times in the past people thought that migration would work against us they assumed if you were leaving a blue state you must have been a blue voter when in fact we've seen from the data that a lot of these people fleeing california and new york and elsewhere were actually republican voters and they actually strengthened um, the Republican margins in places like Texas and Florida. Yep. Yep. and uh, you know they counteracted you know uh, external migration in from outside the country and they also counteracted, a lot of what we're seeing, which really negates all of this, it's basically the indoctrination of new voters, which the left has a complete monopoly on. So we're really, it's a race against time. We could, we could bring the last, you know, red state refuge, uh, blue state, red refugees over. But if the schools are all pumping out, you know, new Maoist inducted kids and we're still importing, you know, millions of of people from abroad, it's really just a losing bargain, especially if they're just moving to red states that are solidly red. You know, we don't need Florida to move from like a 10% red State to an eleven percent or twelve percent red state, we need to move them to the purples. Um, So that's one one issue. Even though I don't necessarily disagree, I think a lot of people are naturally going to move. I would make maybe another argument again, kind of hard to quantify, but places like New York and even San Francisco, you know, love it or hate it. I think I think a lot of conservatives. Um, they, rege- they they reject that there's anything of value in urban life in the cities, and I mm-hmm. think that's also been a problem because when you see these grounds, you're also seeding you know you're seeding parts of the culture, you're seeding control of the financial institutions, you're seeding control of the media. All these big institutions are inevitably going to be based in these these concentrated areas, these concentrated urban hubs. And I'm not saying we're going to have a 50% majority anytime soon, but I'm saying it is, there is some importance and it's, it's not necessarily as easy to quantify as an electoral figure, but there is importance in having a conservative presence that is somewhat lively and robust in a place like New York. And it's not going to be a majority, but it's important to have in a place like New York city, because then you'll have, you know, a professional class that, that shares some of those values and can be part of, institutions and we're never gonna really take those institutions or challenge them if we're simply running and hiding and 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 we're keep we keep moving back the trenches, we keep moving back the f- front lines. So you know some of this gets a little into the weeds, but I do think that's a point that's worth uh mentioning on that front and something that you know could be considered. And also lastly, you know, ele- if we're gonna go back to the electoral argument, it's not all just about you know the presidential elections, as you know, uh, I'm sure you'll bring up as the counter. You know these house seats you know some of these other these other uh, races are extremely important they run through these blue areas there's a lot of republicans that are elected in california in the congressional delegation there's a lot of republicans that are elected in new york in the congressional delegation so we can make it a completely blue state and yeah it maybe won't impact the electoral college but then you're going to have a republican come into office and they're going to have a much harder time getting a governing majority in say the house so it's not just such an easy you know one for one thing there are trade-offs here there are pros and cons i think the bigger focus needs to be on you know fighting back against the indoctrination you know instilling the values and keeping those values instilled in future generations uh because that's really where things are turning out the worst because you could have a christian family you could have a kid who comes from a christian family socially conservative household they go four years in a regular you know four-year school for college they come out as a complete lunatic and it doesn't matter how Christian the parents were. It doesn't matter how loving and caring they are. They have built these things as indoctrination centers. I mean, look at the shooter at the at the at the at the Christian school at Covington in Nashville. She grew up in a Christian conservative household that went to mass and 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 had a really good you know solid upbringing. But then she went into the, the, this crazy program that we have in some of our higher education and came out a different person. And until we address that issue, you know, the moving, you know, a thousand people from here to there, doesn't matter. I would also say one thing about places like San Francisco, because I know Will mentioned it, I think it turns a lot of people conservatives, Because I know a lot of people that lived <laughs> in San Francisco went there being very politically ambivalent
0: that's our indoctrination neutral
2: exactly they went there they worked in you know maybe they worked at an oracle they worked at a tech company and they left and they were just like red pill because they saw the future they saw you know the great new the brave new world that the left wants to build so you know we got to use this for you know that those kind of purposes too um so i'm mixed i'm mixed on this you know i see the pros i see the cons you know maybe someone can do a uh you know, uh, a period of time in a blue area and it, it strengthens the results because I also see a lot of red state, Repo- a lot of red states produce some of the weakest Republicans, believe it or not. Yes. You get a lot of these elected yes. officials from deep red states. They we talked about Asha Hutchinson before mm-hmm. uh, before the show started. I mean, he is a product of a red state, you know, environment. And I don't think I, I think there's a lot of people like him because they've never lived on the other side of the iron curtain. They've never lived in New York City or San Francisco. They've just lived, you know, the good life in Arkansas. And they've only saw, you know, that part of America, which is largely still, thank God, been shielded from a lot of this nonsense. And they just have this very naive perspective. They're like, oh, things are fine. Oh, you know, they just need it's it's, it's a healthcare surgery. Like they don't get it. They don't get what we're up against. I think they need to go. And we need people that see what's happening on the other side. Otherwise we're just going to continue to get these weaker and weaker Republicans and it's all going to devolve.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like the, the cops
3: are coming for Gavin. So Uh, (laughs) can I, can I throw something in real quick? I I do. I, I I deal with this a lot, this question a lot in a different form in some of the communities that I run in, there are a lot of guys who talk about masculinity who say things like enjoy the decline. Right. It's a very ultimately a very defeatist kind of mindset. I would suggest that that uh, you raise some really good points. I would suggest that it could be necessary for people to leave these blue states to begin moving to red states to build competing institutions that the ability to centrally gather. They were going to build because you can either infiltrate the institution, which is becoming increasingly difficult if you look anything like this. <laughs> right. You're just your resume isn't even going to be read. Right. And then, and so what are your alternatives? Well, you can either retreat from the institutions entirely and and go and flee into the wilderness. I don't recommend that. Or you can gather and begin begin building competing institutions. And here's why that strategy wins. Because the people that are taking over institutions now don't know how to build them and they don't know how to run them. They're going to drive them right into the ground versus the competent men that can build institutions. There is a case to be made for us to be meeting face to face and to be able to do it that way. Yeah. That's currently what I'm working on in a
0: red state, you know, for that same yeah. reason. Um, and it, it takes time. And, um, you know, there's some organizational struggles on that front right now. But it is something that I'm working on. Um, I wanted to bring up some of those counterpoints. Um, Sarah Joel in the chat said, my husband wants us to move out of Colorado, but why should I leave? I was born here. My parents were born here. Three-fourths of my grandparents were born here. The invaders should be sent packing. And Susie Q said, I am with you, Shera Joel. I'm not leaving Texas. They can come and take it. And they're trying. And uh yeah, anyways, I I, I wanted to bring that up. Uh Suzuki also said Vody Bakum says if you send your kids to Caesar, don't be surprised if they come back as Romans. And that's what she's referring to about the public school when Gavin mentioned uh, uh mentioned that earlier. And there's a point to be made that uh proper catechizing in the home could definitely uh prevent some of that uh, indoctrination in the school system. But some of the some of the people that I think are going to struggle with, um, you know, those of us who say just move for electoral purposes. First of all, there are people like Shara who just have deep roots there. But beyond having deep roots there, there are people um, I do have a friend in the blue state that, uh, um, you know, he he went through a bad divorce and uh, he has joint custody of his kids. He can't leave this blue state or else he won't have, uh, essentially any part in his children's lives or at least not a, a meaningful part. Um, there are individuals who have their elderly, um, you know, their elderly parents that they have to take care of. And then there is a individual that will actually truly feel called to stay in a blue state for purpose of evangelism and political activism and things of that nature. I personally think that there are a lot of people that say that's why they are, um, they are, uh, staying in California, but they're not actually doing that work. And I think that's just a poor excuse for, they just don't want to change. Um, but those are some reasons that I see as being, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, hard pills to swallow about moving. And of course that is probably only if I'm being generous, probably 10% of people that are actually in these States that have more conservative leaning values. Um, but, That being said, these are still people that can't leave. So do we just leave them to rot along with the rest of the state? That's a a moral question that we have to think about. Um, And so Austin, maybe I'll bring you into this because I know that you are like a, what, a third or fourth uh, generation Arizonan and you're currently watching your state uh, go from red to purple to maybe blue question mark. So I mean, give your answer.
1: And you know that tweet? brings up a really good point you know my like i said my family's been here in arizona since before statehood so i know the stories of what the state was like before it was the actual state when it was just a territory um you know barry goldwater was born here before it was a state and he was the longest serving senator that we had for arizona um and so like my district in particular i've always grown up in the west valley in arizona always like and i always grew up in the rural part of my state in maricopa county the district i represent is one of the last bastions of rural maricopa county that's a republican district that's just in maricopa county that doesn't encompass other districts but Um, Maricopa County has been the largest and fastest growing County in the country for like the last decade, you know, building houses, bringing in these corporations, bringing in these new businesses, which has been ultimately good for the state economically wise, but politically we've become more of a swing state. We've lost a lot of ground in cultural institutions here. We've lost a lot of political, you know, ground here. And so to say that, you know, like if, you know, if we just had 10 more, 10,000 more people from California come to Arizona, you know, that are Republican voters, we're going to flip the state back. It's not the case. It's all a ground up. It's a it's a building block thing, a foundational thing. Um, and you know, most people from California, they don't just end up in Arizona. They do go to Texas. They do go to Colorado. They go to Nevada. You know, my fiance, she's from Illinois. She lived right on the border of Illinois and Wisconsin. We do get a lot of Midwest transplants. And you know, they're like, "Wow, this this weather is beautiful year round. I don't have to deal with snow and ice. You know, eight months out of the year. I think I'm just going to stay here and drink a margarita on my porch year round. Swim in my pool. You know." And so people enjoy that stuff. And part of it is that, you know, maybe they've had that Midwest Democrat culture where they lived, and so now they have brought it to Arizona. And so there's a lot of things that have really pulled into play here with Arizona on top of, you know, the the demographic change that we've had here of Hispanic population increase. But that's another point I'll bring up before I go to this is that, you know, 2016 in South Phoenix, if you guys Mm -hmm. don't know, that's a much more Hispanic area in Arizona, Southern Phoenix is. In 2020, Trump did better than he did in 2016 there. And, you know, we've made a lot of inroads in Hispanic communities in Arizona because of, you know, conservative leaders. You know, when Barack Obama was running for president for re-election in 2012, he didn't pivot to be moderate, you know, coming through these elections. He stayed in his ground and even got further left. And so the, the, you can make a case that, you know, just because you have these transplants coming in from these other states, doesn't necessarily mean that they're moderate voters or that they're Republican voters. You have to stick true to your values, your morals and your convictions, what brings people here. But you know, states like Southern states where they have a culture, places like New York where they have a culture, places in the Midwest where they have a culture, Arizona's in this unique spot because it's a melting pot of different cultures between Hispanic communities, Midwest communities, Rural communities, families like mine who have been here for several generations, you know, people who just showed up 40 days ago. And so, you know, New York, they have, you know, hundreds of years of families that have come to New York from other countries. The Midwest, the same exact thing. California, same exact way. So Arizona is like, you know, it was the last state in the union that was uh, of the territorial 48 that was admitted to the union. And so, you know, a lot of people don't understand. I was like, well, if Arizona just had more Republican voters, it would be different. Not necessarily. It's always going to be a cultural thing here. So I don't know if you guys know this or not, but like Arizona now has like the largest semiconductor plant that has just been built here. And so there's going to be a lot of people from Taiwan that move to Arizona. I'm hoping that this is kind of a turning point because we've had a lot of California companies come to Arizona. And they have brought a lot of Democrat voters with them. You know, Taiwanese people, they are on the much more cultural conservative side. I'm hoping those folks coming to Arizona, bringing not just those who work for the Taiwan semiconductor, but the other parts of their culture that are coming to Arizona, because Taiwan is a conservative country, a more free, loving country. So I'm hoping that coming to Arizona will change the dynamic shift. But uh, and I'll end it with, you know, you've got to stay here. My cousin is a perfect example, not a political guy. He's concerned Christian conservative in our family. And, you know, he's ready to leave Arizona. Because he knows the story of like where our family came from and has seen the degradation of Arizona politically and, and a little bit of cultural here, culture here because a lot of people you know, really didn't have a stake in their community. That's why it's so important when, when Gavin talks about New York that those people that are there, they love their community. They're staying there to fight for it. The same exact thing applies to Arizona for these families that have been here for so long. But everybody's just kind of inundated of um, All these new people that are coming here, all these cultures that are coming here—it's this new battleground swing state. We don't have to worry about it anymore. You know that's what the old GOP thought, but that's changed now. And so it's going to be—you know—a decade, decade and a half, almost two decades before Arizona is really on a path for maybe like Florida and Ohio are. And so um, that's why I'm staying in the fight. That's why I ran for the legislature because it's the, it's the bottom up, it's the ground up. You know, you know, everybody will talk if you're if you're watching the show and you're not really po- political. Um, obviously, the presidential election cycle is a big thing. Electing a president is it's like, but there's more people who affect your life that are on your city and town council and your board of supervisors, your your kisser count, and your state representative and your state senator than your United States senator and congressman do. And so yeah. that local impact really changes the politics of
0: your state. Yeah, I completely agree. Austin did mention that Taiwan is a country, so I will have to censor him for the rest of this stream. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, uh, no, of Tr- Tr- course, course strike inbound. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, ultimately I, I think there's just no clear cut answer. And it's really easy to say that there is because a lot of the arguments that like Joel Webin has made, for example, is just the idea that, uh, you know, your taxes are going to be funding a lot of these things that, uh, are adamantly opposed to, um, your values in some of these states especially as they raise, you know, uh, the percentage that you are taxed. Um, but again, you know, I, I think, I think the greater solution just ultimately boils down to if you are someone that wants to skirt by without being involved. Well, the reality is like, you can do that, of course. And I don't think that you are, uh, necessarily, not everyone is called to be involved in politics on the same level. Not everyone's called to run for office like Austin has done. And not everyone is called to be a, a grassroots activist like Gavin. And um, But, you know, ultimately, I think to some degree, everyone should have some form of civic duty uh, because the reality to whom much has been given, much will be required. Um, that is a principle that we live by. And the reality is we have been given uh, we, we won the lottery by just being born in America. As believers and just citizens in general. And the reality is, if we watch this to, if we watch this country just fall apart because of inaction. I mean, we're going to be held accountable to that to some degree. I'm not saying that there's people that are going to be, you know, uh, losing their eternal salvation because they weren't, uh, you know, a, a precinct commitment or something like that. Of course, I'm not going to uh, ever pretend that that is something that uh, is salvific in nature, but I do think that in general, all of our actions are going to be weighed accordingly, um, on judgment day. And, uh, you know, um, there's arguments to be made that we should be doing our very best each day to, um, claim the civic sphere for the glory of Christ. So ultimately um, that's up to you to decide. I mean, any final thoughts on this from any of you?
2: No, beautifully stated.
0: All right. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Uh, We went a little bit over in our time. I know we had some other topics that I had ready to go in case we, uh, we had time to do it, but uh, um, we won't uh, drag this out much longer because we, we definitely thoroughly beat those other topics and, uh, it was a great conversation. I really appreciate having both of you on. That being said, Austin, where can people go to uh, find you and keep up with everything that you are a part of?
1: Yeah, Connor, Will, Gavin, great being with you guys. Thanks for, for having me on. Great conversation with the conservative, Christian, patriotic men. Um, you can find me on Twitter at AZAustinSmith. Same thing on Instagram at AZAustinSmith. Or you can go to my campaign website, austinforarizona.com.
0: Awesome. And Gavin, where can people go to find you?
2: It was great being on. I really enjoyed the discussion. We have to do this again. Uh, You can follow me at Gavin Wax on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the rest, gavinwax.com. My articles are available on Town Hall, Daily Caller, uh, Newsmax, and you can follow the club, nyyrc.com. If you're in the uh, New York metropolitan area, we'd love to have you join and get involved. And uh, again,
0: this was a great discussion. Hope to do it again. Awesome. Will, where can people find you?
3: Thanks, guys. This was awesome. Austin, you're out there in the wilderness, out there in the far west valley and in, in the rugged, the rugged frontier. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, basically everywhere at Ren of Men. And you can go to renofmencom slash links and you can find links to my podcast and everything else.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We have been Forge and Anvil and we will see you next time.